Thank you very much, Catherine. Um, I'm really delighted to be here and talk about this topic, which is very close to my heart in various guises as a Lancet editor, but also as the vice chair of the Committee on Publication Ethics. And what I'm going to do today is talk to you, tell you a little bit about what COPE is, the Committee on Publication Ethics, what we do, how we help editors, but also give you sort of thoughts on how we all, authors, researchers, institutions, funders, editors, publishers can work better together to, in this field because I think that's, this is where we need to do a lot more work in. But before I go into this, let's just look at some of the definitions. They might be all very familiar to you, um, but there are lots and lots of very different definitions of research or publication misconduct, the other side of research integrity out there. So, for example, the Office of Research Integrity, which is the US-based um, national body to look at this, has a very, very strict and narrow definition, and that is fabrication, falsification, plagiarism only, FFP, the red uh, in red here. And it has to be, and that was added only later on, intentional. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, that's sometimes very difficult, especially in falsification, people do argue, you know, oh, I, that, I didn't know that I couldn't, could leave these out, couldn't leave these outliers out, uh, out of my analysis or so. So I, I don't know how helpful this intentional is, but this is what, what they define it as. I define, or we in COPE as well, define it much, much, much broader. Um, for example, even gift authorship, we regard as publication misconduct. Um, Widely, that is known as questionable research practices now. And it's less serious than fabrication, but it is still the other side of research integrity. There are very little data out there how often this happens. At this point, I usually ask the audience, let's see, who here has witnessed serious misconduct? No one. Oxford is a fantastic place. Who has witnessed questionable research practices? Three? Well, we're getting sort of more into this area. So it's obviously there is a, a curve here. And what the percentages refer to, this is from published literature, but you know, one can argue whether that's correct. So falsification, fabrication, plagiarism is 0.1 to 1% and questionable research practices 10 to 50%. I'd argue that's probably higher than the 50%, but it depends how you look. And responsible conduct of researchers at the other end here of this spectrum. So when US researchers were asked, and that's in a published study in Nature, um, over 2,000 researchers were asked whether they had observed, and now this is serious research misconduct, my first question to you, so FFP, 8.7% said that they had witnessed or had direct experience of this. So that's pretty high. And in that paper, they calculate that instead of the 24 cases that the ORI deals with every year, um, they would have had to deal with more than 2,300 from that kind of survey. But you get a little bit of a feel how shaky the data are out there in terms of how common is it. I don't think it matters, actually. It happens, it's all that matters. What are the consequences? 
This is a very famous case, the Huang Wu Suk case in stem cell research and papers get retracted all over the place. There was a recent article or editorial even in Nature which argued retractions are going up. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? Is it a good thing? Does it show that we're having more research misconduct out there now than before? I'd argue actually we're probably getting better in detecting it and we're getting better in acting upon it. Now, the consequences, there are personal consequences, they affect careers, reputations, they are institutional consequences. Again, a whole institution's reputation may be tarnished depending on how they deal with it. And it, it shines a spotlight on the processes and the education in this field that happens or doesn't happen at a particular institution. It can throw a spotlight on a whole country unfairly, some may say, but it does. And in Nature, they have written about a very egregious Austrian case about two years ago, which involved The Lancet, where we had to retract a paper. And they said at the bottom of it, something is rotten in the state of Austria, which upset an awful lot of people in Austria, I can tell you that. Um, but just think of China. There's a lot out there on plagiarism in China. There had to be 70 papers had to be retracted last January from a particular Chinese group. So, you know, people start thinking about whole countries in this sort of way. And a whole field of research may be tarnished. And that goes into the area of public trust. And of course, the most uh, recent example of that, even when there's only alleged research misconduct, which turns out to be not the case, tarnishes a whole field. And this is the example of the climate data, um, where a Guardian headline in February says, UK scientists hit climate data flaws. We now know that there was no research misconduct. However, the uh, conclusions of Muir Russell's uh, investigation did say there had been a consistent pattern of failing to display proper degree of openness. And the scientists failed to appreciate the risk their lack of transparency posed to the university and to the credibility of a whole field of research, the UK climate science field. So I'd argue prevention it's better than cure, but you can't always prevent it, of course. But we need to think about fostering research integrity and good and responsible research conduct rather than just thinking about misconduct all the time. So what is the role of all in this? What is the role of researchers, authors, institutions, funders, editors, publishers? There's a whole of overlap, of course, in these uh, people. Many researchers are also part-time editors. Many heads of departments or institutions are also researchers and authors. So, you know, we have different hats and different roles, but we need to think about it on, in, in all this uh, context. So researchers and authors, I, th I think it comes all down to honesty, transparency and taking responsibility. Sounds very easy, it's not. But if you adhere to these three values, then I think you know, that is, goes a, a long way towards having responsible conduct of research. So that includes, before you set out to do a study, have a clear discussion among all the authors, 
who will be an author and what is their role. Um, we see so many authorship disputes, you know, right at the end, at publication, before pu just before publication or after publication. So at the beginning of a research study, the group should sit together and have a clear discussion on this. Then everyone should take responsibility for the conduct and the reporting of research. Hold it, people say then, I can't take responsibility for the statistical ana analysis, I'm not a statistician, I can't take responsibility for a particular genetic test. Well, I think you should take some degree of responsibility and you should, by having a group of people working together, it is inherent that the group trusts each other and it's up to you how you decide how to trust each other. We can talk about that perhaps afterwards a little bit more because I think this is an area where there's a lot of confusion and where even journal editors don't always agree. And science journals often say, especially those with you know, more than 100 authors on a paper, in a physics paper or in, or in the genetics papers, say this is unworkable. On the other hand, all of these authors take credit as authors for a particular publication. And I always argue that you cannot take credit without also taking responsibility. Open, full and honest reporting of your research methods and the findings. No cutting corners, no leaving out outliers. Um, we at the Lancet ask for protocols with all research, with all randomized controlled trials, but also with other types of research if we, uh, um, if we have any doubts on what we get. And once I got a, a protocol where I thought, they must, have, they must have made a mistake, they sent me the wrong protocol. And I rang up the author and he said, no, 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 this was the protocol, because it had sort of nothing to do with the paper that I had in front of me. Um, he said, yeah, this was the protocol, but we found something completely different. And they wrote it up in a completely different way. So if I had not seen this protocol, you know, I would have not known that they had actually set out to do something completely different and reported a tertiary, you know, outcome measure as if it was the primary. Discussion of limit, honest discussion of limitations. Again, as an editor, I give a lot of credit to the authors who do go into the who do in the discussion session uh, section, honestly and openly say these are the limitations of my research. No sort of saying, you know, no um, covering up things that you should have mentioned there, because then I, as an editor, certainly, I get suspicious. Open and honest reporting of conflicts of interest and the role of the funder. I think that's, again, it's an area where we see a lot of transgressions um, at COPE. So, when there's proven misconduct or when misconduct is happening within a research group, there's not much, I think, authors can do other than facing the consequences. So agree to a retraction, agree to a correction where it's appropriate. There's a lot of confusion still out there. When is a retraction and when is a correction appropriate? Corrections uh, mean that the research in itself stands, but something needs to be corrected for it to be understood. So for example, authorship issues. If an author is left out, could be accidentally or not so accidentally, that could be corrected because it doesn't make the research invalid. Or if a conflict of interest 
has not been reported that could be added. However, that's already a slightly grey area because if there's a substantial conflict of interest, perhaps reviewers and editors would have looked at the research in a different way if they had known about that beforehand. And retraction needs to be done when the research is invalid, i.e. if there's fraud or falsification, but also if there's plagiarism, because that you know, needs to be taken out of the literature, you would have had two studies the same. Apart from that, it's not your own work, but you would have also have two studies with uh, reporting similar or the same kind of research, which will be then taken into a meta-analysis or, or a systematic review as two separate studies where there weren't, and the same is for redundant publication. So, the role, what role should institutions take? in prevention. And I think, again, here there's a lot to be done still. The first thing is, often when we write as editors, um, you know, when, when we have a case and we want to write to someone who's responsible at an institution, we don't actually know who to write to. So there should be a clearly named responsible person for research integrity, or there should be a whole office for research integrity, and it should be at a high level. Now, I always think it would be a really good idea, and I'd be interested to hear whether that happens in Oxford, if, if there is a central institutional data repository, which may even be check audited at times. Um, education in responsible conduct of research, I think, is really, really, really important, and that should include publication ethics. And this should be done for all, for students to start with, but also for postgraduates and I think very important for faculty. There should be strong and clear processes and guidelines what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate in various areas. And if these are not followed, there should be consequences. I think a lot of institutions now do have guidelines, most I would say in the UK and definitely a large number in the US. And if you read them, they're all really good guidelines, but then, you know, nothing still happens when really, um, when it's really needed. And each institution should have a sort of a, uh, what we in medicine always call a mortality and morbidity review. When something happened, you know, we should learn from each case for the future. Could, could that case have been prevented? If so, how could it, could it have been prevented? Um, and you know, do we need to tighten up our guidelines? Do we need new guidelines? And educate others on each particular case. We do that at The Lancet with all our cases. So any paper that we have to retract or have to serious difficulties with, um, we have about seven or eight ongoing at any given time, just to give you an idea. And each such case, we then sit down afterwards and go through the whole process. Could we have spotted this earlier? Could the peer reviewers have spotted it? What could we have done to avoid it possibly? And we have from these cases made certain changes. For example, you might remember that case with John Sudbo, which was, who was a Norwegian uh, doctor who um, published a paper in The Lancet. Um, which was then found to be fraudulent, was completely made up. Half of the people he entered into some sort of database had the same date of birth, so it was very easy to spot afterwards. But we could have spotted this before because he claimed to have uh, these participants from a registry which was at the time 
not available in Norway. So from that, we have then made a rule that anywhere, anytime there is a regist registered study in a particular country, it's probably helpful to go to a reviewer within that country who could have perhaps told us that before we published the paper. So what should institutions do if there is alleged misconduct? Again, we need this named responsible person um, to deal with it. Um, and then we need a fair, speedy and ideally independent investigation into it. So often, you know, heads at the um, institutional responsible people are either close colleagues of the people involved or they involve themselves. And it's very helpful to have at least some outside people to be part of this investigation. I'm saying speedy in my experience. Most of these investigations take anywhere between six, six months and two years. And that's already not speedy at all. I mean, I think six months is probably something to aim for. Anything under six months is, is difficult, I know, because it's on top of everything. And it, then raises the question, has this been a thorough investigation? We've had cases where people come back within a week and tell us something, and then I qu seriously question whether that has been a, a thorough and reasonable investigation into a case. And all involved should be informed, and that includes all journal editors and also funders. Funders are the least likely to be informed of any outcome. These investigations and conclusions should ideally also be publicly available so that they can be cited and that the conclusions can be named in the reasons for any action. For example, a journal takes like a retraction and the institution needs to have appropriate sanctions. And again, I would say any case should, you know, uh, should lead to a review of processes and the safeguards. So editors, how can editors be helped? Because editors are often very, very busy people they have this editor's job as a part-time on top of their job as a full-time researcher or um, clinician. And they have no experience in how to deal with these things from an editor's role. So this is where COPE comes in, the Committee on Publication Ethics. And in the beginning, it was really just a sort of a club of three or four editors getting together in 1997. And start discussing cases that they found difficult like so what have you done in a case like this or what would you do in a case like this a very informal self-help group um, we've now come very far these are the three guys who've founded cope so to speak and i have three wise fathers fathers richard horton from the lancet richard smith who's then editor of the bmj and mike farthing who was then ed editor of gut um, started off with about six, 30 to 60 members in the first year and we had this huge increase in membership which took us by surprise i can tell you from 2000 between 2004 and 2008 and that mainly happened because large <coughs> publishing companies have signed up all their journals so elsevier for example has signed up all their journals and we suddenly have 1800 more members than we had before they signed up. And it also means that we have not only biomedical and science journals which we, with which we started, we now have all sorts of uh, journals from 
Acta Archaeologica to Zygon Journal of Religion and Science, or what did I see <laughs> the other day? The, the Journal of Feminist Politics and the Dance Journal. And it's quite interesting for us to see whether all these journals have very similar problems than biomedical journals or different ones. And so far, we're finding, apart from exceptions such as ethics, unethical research, where there are humans involved, um, that they're very, very similar issues such as authorship, plagiarism, duplicate publication, all very, very similar. Um, we meet four times a year in a forum where our member editors can come and bring cases which are then anonymously discussed and the forum gives advice. So we don't do any investigations ourselves, we give just advice on what is presented to us, um, which, you know, we might, it might be wrong what the editor presents to us. So we just always throw it back to the editor and say, from what you present, this is what we would do. Um, and then editors can cite this COPE advice, though, in their actions, which often helps to elicit responses, in my experience. And they come back to us and tell us the outcomes. And these cases are published on our website. They, and you can search them by keywords. And they're quite a good source if you ever come across a case yourself that you have to deal with. If you go to the COPE website, you can then see what in a similar case has been done. So that's how it looks. We're sort of sitting around the table. It's very informal. Um, and, you know, if you ever happen to be in London, you're interested, you can also just come and visit that forum. What kind of cases do editors bring? Um, and again, this is not, you know, an incidence rate, but the most common cases are duplicate or redundant publication when we looked last um, and, and tried to split them up by, by problem. But authorship issue is very, very high up there as well um, because they're difficult to deal with. Um, and, but I want to highlight also the, in red there, reviewer misconduct and editorial misconduct. So editors themselves can be the problem. And COPE very much also likes to educate editors how to behave appropriately as an editor. We also have a code of conduct for editors, which we launched in 2004, and that we very much regard as the basic standard that all editors should adhere to. And COPE can actually investigate complaints against editors if the code is not followed and the journal's own complaint mechanism has been uh, exhausted. And we have done so probably in about three or four cases so far, which mainly leads us to educate the editor and go back to the editor and say, actually, you have not followed the code in this instance and you need to do this and this and in future. Uh, as a last resort, all we can do is throw a member out, but that's not something we're aiming to do. We, we're very much there to educate and help editors. We're currently reviewing the code of conduct in light of all these new journals that have signed up and to see whether it does apply to all types of journals and this is work which is just in progress and we're meeting in two days time to look at that in great detail but just from eyeballing all the responses of 50 uh, editors from very different backgrounds in biomedicine 
the, I think the code of conduct as it, as it stands is pretty much applicable also to um, journals from other fields. And I think one of the main principles for editors is because they are the first recipients of suspicions very often about studies that might involve misconduct, um, research misconduct, as well as publication misconduct, um, they have a duty to take action. Because what happened before is, as soon as something slightly odd happened in, uh, with research, um, editors often just rejected the paper. And said, so, mm, I'm not quite sure about this, let's just reject it. But what happens next? It gets published just in another journal somewhere down the pecking order of journals. And I think that we have a duty as editors, we are guardians of the whole of the research record, not just our particular journal. And that's where, the, where COPE comes in and says, you do have a duty as an editor to take every case serious and take every case forward, even when it's just in a submitted paper. We then developed also flowcharts, and they're again a good source uh, on the website to look at if you have doubts yourself in redundant publication, plagiarism, all the, many, all the common um, issues where you basically can down, go down a sort of a chart which says, has this and this happened? Yes, no, and if, then you go down further steps. Um, so very straightforward cases can be easily solved by just going down the steps on this flowchart, which means that we now in our forum mainly discuss complex cases where it's not that straightforward. And this is what these, these flowcharts look like. Um, they've also been translated in various languages, you, um, mainly uh, when people have approached us and said, can we please also have it in Chinese? And can we have it in Korean? Can we have it in Japanese? And we always say, yes, we do check with back translation that it's correct, but we allow that uh, to happen. Two years later, after the code of conduct, we then um, developed a best practice guidelines, realizing that uh, editors need to also have something to strive towards perhaps not practical for all journals, especially for small journals, um, but it would be helpful to them, that was what we heard, if they could say something to their publishers or others involved, this is what we would like to do because this is regarded as best practice. And again, I'm currently reviewing this and see whether it's applicable or whether we can make it, uh, broaden it even further to make it applicable to all types of journals, not just biomedical journals. There are other activities um, that COPE is doing. We have a publication ethics audit tool. So that is a member journal can come to us and say, could, you could we, uh, we, we would like to see how well we are doing in this uh, scheme of best practice and code of conduct. Um, and then there's this tool, tool they can actually apply uh, and see, and see uh, where they sit in this, um, in this spectrum. We have a newsletter, quarterly newsletter with a news editor, just six, eight pages of publication ethics news. We have a new website um, with blogs and sample letters and cases on there. 
which was developed in 2008 and we are currently reviewing the website so there will be yet another new website coming in 2011 hopefully we have annual seminars which are very good edu educational uh, source last year's was uh, largely on plagiarism they often have a topic uh, they're held in London, but we also have since last year one held in Washington each year, and the Washington one is in at the end of uh, November, which is the second one in the U.S. And we're aiming to have a, a further um, U.S.-based seminar in the, in the West Coast as well. We've developed retraction guidelines because we found that editors feel very nervous about retractions, so these have been very much uh, welcomed by editors because often you know, re retracting a paper is never an easy thing. But there need to be clear guidelines how to do this. For example, you need to state the reason for retraction. Any paper out there needs to be clearly marked as retracted. Um, some editors have felt that they can just take it down from a website and that equals retraction, which of course it doesn't. That's just, you cannot just take a paper down from somewhere. And when it's online, it means it is published. So you need to follow the proper retraction guidelines in that as well. Editors were nervous and said, can we be sued by authors if they don't agree with the retraction? Because it does happen, authors don't, do not always agree. But you as editor have, um, you have a duty to still act and you can definitely retract a paper even when authors don't agree. And our lawyers tell us that there's no ground at all for, to sue editors when they follow the correct process. COPE collaborates with other organisations like the Office of Research Integrity, the European Science Foundation, the Council of Science Editors, the UK Research Integrity Office um, and others on issues of publication ethics. And this is our newsletter. Our website <coughs> looks like this. And on the website, we also have news, but also this blog is quite interesting because it picks up on a weekly basis anything written on publication ethics or research integrity. We've started since August this year to also have a Facebook site for those who are using that, although it's probably sort of the slightly younger generation that gets into the Facebook site. Who uses Facebook here? Okay, I'll take it back. <laughs> and we also, uh, um, you can also follow us on Twitter. Whereas we were this self-help group very much until 2000, we then became sort of a more a constitutional body with elected officers and a council and since the 2008 COPE has become a UK-based charity. We have a full-time operations manager now and an administrator and a part-time web administrator because with all these expansion and six and a half thousand journals we have a lot of work to do and I'm spending currently about a day a week on COPE which is too much. Um, Liz Wager is the current chair of COPE um, the secretary is Ginny Barber from Cross Medicine. Chris Graff from Blackwell Wiley is acting treasurer. What we're working on very hard at the moment is a e-learning module for editors with 10 different modules on like plagiarism, fabrication, um, redundant publication and so on. And the first, we're hoping to release the first module in early 2011, in January or February 2011. We 
discussing whether we should have rapid online responses because we every three months we meet only and sometimes people need need advice in a more timely fashion we're just slightly concerned that we wouldn't have enough time um, actually to, to do that in the meantime. But we're, we're in serious discussion to perhaps add that as an option. Um, we're also thinking about having four and other locations in the USA and the UK. And we did one in Singapore and, um, co in connection with the uh, Second World Research Integrity Conference that was happening there in July and it was very well received. We actually are also working on a code of conduct for publishers because the publishers have signed up all their journals and, and they say, oh, haven't we done well? We're now also ethical, we've signed up all our journals, but actually we haven't got anything to say how publishers should behave. And there's a whole big area in terms of, for example, editorial independence, um, you know, that needs to be dealt with in a code of conduct for publishers. We also would very much like to issue, and we've kind of started drafting this, uh, guidance on co cooperation between institutions, funders, and journals. Because this is where a lot of difficulties arise, where editors have all the good intentions and they want to act, but they actually haven't got <coughs> the, the institutions buy-in, or the institutions don't do anything, or they take far too long. And this is something I think which, which we would very much welcome thoughts also from people in institutions. I've already mentioned the Singapore's Second World Research Integrity Conference. In context with this conference, we have worked with others to develop international standards for authors and international standards for editors. And this, the author standards very much what, from the uh, point of view, what editors expect authors to do or not to do. And these will be published in March 2011 as the Singapore pr proceedings. But I give you a little kind of sneak preview of what they look like. So we're saying editors are accountable and should take responsibility for everything they publish. Yes, that goes without saying. But, you know, this, this isn't, isn't followed by everyone or by every editor, or not even every editor agrees with that. Editors should make fair and unbiased decisions, independent from commercial considerations, and ensure fair and um, appropriate peer review process. Um, editorial policies should be having maximum transparency. Um, they should encourage maximum transparency and complete and honest reporting. And editors should guard integrity by issuing corrections and retractions. And we talk very much also about editors re uh, pursuing reviewer and editorial misconduct, dealing with their own conflicts of interest, um, and so on. This is just a summary of a, of a sort of eight-page document. And similarly, we have this international standards for authors that we've issued there in Singapore. Um, where we ask that authors should report um, everything you know, in an ethical and responsible manner, should present their results clearly and honestly, li a little bit what I've already said, methods clearly and un unambiguously, they should adhere to publication requirements, and they should take collective responsibility. I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts on that, whether you feel, where does, where, how can we grasp this, 
nettle of collective responsibility as authors. And the authorship of research publications should accurately reflect individuals' contributions to the work. A lot of journals have contributor statements at the end of um, a published paper, and I very much recommend that to new editors or journals, um, but not everybody does. And there are particular countries where it's just de rigueur that the head of department always has to be an author on each paper, whether they have anything to do with it at all or not. Um, funding sources and relevant conflicts of interest should be disclosed. Now, what do editors have difficulties with and what when they try and resolve these cases? It's time consuming, especially if editor, being an editor is your you know, job on the top of three other jobs already. You get no reply from authors when you challenge them. When you need to go further and go to the institutions, there's no reply often from the head of institutions. And this is where COPE does help, because if you can say, this has been discussed at the Committee on Publication Ethics, and you write that in your letter, and it sounds like a grand old committee, you know, with a lot of teeth, where we don't actually have teeth, but it just sounds like that, you, as an editor, find you often get a better response. Then, an in, even if an investigation is done, it might be inadequate. There may be no institution, then you're stuck, you don't know where, who to go to. And we had once a case where we finally gave up. We tried to pursue it for years, but it was like the, the author was the head of a private institution where his wife was the manager of that institution. And you know, it's sort of, you, you've run out of places to go to, basically. Um, we do say that we occasionally may ask to, for authors to provide their original data for us to look at, but we have moved away a little bit from that because we, we then end up having, you know, boxes and boxes and boxes full of data. And what, do, what as editors do we do with that? So we throw that back at the institution and say, you do your investigation and, that, and you let us know what happened. Um, what to do if alleged misconduct is unproven? The Lancet, we always had this very famous case where the author came back to us when we said, Where's your where are your data? Um, oh, I'm so sorry, they've been eaten by white ants or termites. Where in his country, that was you know, entirely plausible until he said exactly the same a few years later to the BMJ, you know, when something similar happened. So there were a few too many white ants there. And we decided that we would, uh, in that case, what we do is issue an expression of concern, stating exactly what, what our concern is and explaining exactly what happened, including the um, explanation of the author. And what do we do with authors in the future? Some journals ban authors for three years, five years, forever. Um, COPE doesn't recommend anything like that because it's very difficult um, to do that. But in practice, I have to say, as editors, we just have very long memories. So how can editors prevent research or publication misconduct? That's more difficult, and we only have indirect influence, I'd say. We can, uh, we can try and promote reporting standards like consort or strobe. We promote honesty and transparency by asking for protocols, as I've explained, or asking for ethics approval forms or say, um, trial registration. Contributor statement goes a long way, um, you know, in making at least the authors think about authorship. You know, they can't very well put at the end, such and such had 
no role in, at all in any of the study. Um, we can write editorials and commentaries on issues of publication ethics. Then we get into the area of screening. We can now screen for misconduct in two instances, and that is for plagiarism or redundant publication using cross-check or similar software. And we've just started doing that at The Lancet for only some papers, not all. But I have to say, we've already discovered two cases of redundant publication that would have otherwise been published because we just did it just before acceptance. We just looked and, you know, there was one paper which had 60% overlap with a previously published paper. We can screen for figure manipulation and we don't do that yet, but some of the science journals do that and you just, it's quite easy to do because you just need to adapt the con contrast and you can see here in this example, you know, this is the submitted image and then when you look in a different sort of contrast change adjustment, you can just see how these three are just dropped in here, sort of cut and pasted somewhat. <clears throat> I want to conclude now and leave you with questions and unsolved issues and I'd be very interested to hear if you have any thoughts on any of these. So, if there's collaborative research across disciplines, across institutions, across countries, who is then overall responsible and how do we deal with that? Still unknown whether you grow up in an, in an environment where minor misconduct, which is cutting out the outliers and so on, is tolerated or is, is the norm, whether then you grow on to um, commit major misconduct or you're more likely to commit major misconduct. Is pressure to publish have an inference? Probably you all would say yes, yeah, and I probably would agree with that. Um, are commercially funded studies with lots of conflict of interest issues like patents more or less likely to lead to misconduct? There are arguments on both sides. Of course, there's more at stake, there's money at stake. On the other hand, some of the you know, pharmaceutically sponsored studies, they have very, very well laid out processes to look into that. They have audit, they, you know, if, it, if it's well done, they have probably more rigorous processes than an institution. Which preventive actions work? And you might say that's well, if you educate people, then that's a good thing and it works. But there have been studies and Melissa Anderson um, has, uh, has done one in, in this area where it's been shown that if you educate mentors, for example, or those that are mentored in a particular way, they were more likely to commit misconduct. So not what was intended, but that was what the study showed. What's the best model for national bodies? Is it like the Office of Research Integrity, you know, which is very much, um, you know, it, it, it's a legislation, it, it is based on legislation and it demands institutions to do their investigations. Is it the Scandinavian model where it goes to a group which is often led by a chair that, who isn't in the field, might maybe even a lawyer? Or is it an advisory body only like the UK Research Integrity Office? 
And do we actually need international bodies, especially when you go back to that first question, collaborative international um, research? I think we certainly need international bodies to raise these issues widely. Thank you for your attention. I'm very, um, I'm very happy to answer any questions or get your thoughts on anything that I've presented.